One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Team Human is ad-free and supported entirely by teammates like John Lipkowski, Brynna Campbell, McOwls, Evil Architect, Lex, and hopefully you. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to get access to our Discord, free links to my paywalled medium pieces, access to the Rushkoff archives, and lots of other team-only perks, including our monthly live Team Human salons. Our next salon will be this Friday, April 28th at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon California, and 8 p.m. in the UK. See you there. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, an opportunity to rise to the occasion of our special place among Earthlings and take responsibility for our impact on everyone and everything else. Our species overshoot will be corrected for one way or the other. Let's make it peaceful. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, my new best friend and mentor, co-founder of Greenpeace and writer of the Deep Green column at Greenpeace International's website, Rex Weiler. People don't change because you give them the facts. But what might help is to give, give the public stories and images, give them a narrative that people were actually out there. We're going to actually go out there and we're going to get between the exploding harpoon and the whale and we're going to say, no, you got to shoot through us to kill that whale. Rex will be helping us transcend the idea that we can fix the environment, or anything else for that matter, so we can finally learn to participate as members of a living world. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Over the past few weeks, I've been sharing a new approach to social and cultural change that I've been working on. It's a matter of kind of instigating social change by focusing less on changing or manipulating people than changing the register. Now, I got the word register from business ethicist Jerry Davis, who we had on just a couple of weeks ago. I've been working with him and some other folks at Institute for the Future on an initiative called uh, Equitable Enterprise. And Jerry, he doesn't mean 
changing the cash register or moving to a blockchain ledger. Rather, he means moving from uh, industrial growth-based values to ones of mutuality and collaborative commerce, a lot of what we've talked about on this show over the years. Now, we have the math and economics to show how a circular economy distributes greater prosperity to more people more sustainably than extractive capitalism or competitive models. But shifting from one to the other would require a substantial shift in values. We're talking about a change of mindset, uh, paradigm, social norms, uh, collective narrative, or again, word that we're using, register from personal profit and individual survival to one of mutual prosperity and collective flourishing. So changing registers, like like changing a, a musical key from one scale to the other, like C minor to F major, it, it's more like changing the, the, the conversational atmosphere, the story, the narrative, the mindset or register through which we're trying to uh, work and, and communicate and socialize and actualize um, real solutions. And that got me thinking about really any effort at social change and how we might be able to shift from an industrial age model of initiating change by manipulating people to a model where we work on changing the environment in order to make new attitudes and approaches easier to adapt. So rather than changing people or getting people to do X or Y, we create the conditions that engender the attitudes and behaviors more conducive to the kind of society we want to live in. And yes, these are actually also the same sorts of conditions we need in order to train our emerging artificial intelligences to serve the long-term interests of humans and other life. If AIs continue to train on our current social norms, they're only going to exacerbate our penchant for growth and individualism at the expense of everything else. So the four interventions I'm proposing, there is much a way of offering them some alternative pathways as it is for us. So the first one was to denaturalize power, which really just means helping people recognize the underlying assumptions embedded in our world are inventions and social constructions that we mistake for the conditions of nature. I'm calling the second one triggering agency. And I guess I, I got the, the notion back the first time I ever used a word processing program, which was in the computer lab at college. And when I was ready to save the file, the grad student supervising the lab asked me how I wanted to save the file as a protected file that no one else could open, a read-only file that other people could open, or a read-write file that could not only be opened by other people, but also changed. And I went with read-write, of course. And I'll never forget how that concept stayed with me as I left the lab and considered all the other media and institutions in my world. Which things 
were read only and which were read write and why why was so much stuff saved as read only when it really should be read write i mean why is money read only or religion why why can't we change them and how much of the world was arbitrarily protected from our intervention who got to make those decisions and what happens if i violate them i had been raised in the read only media environment of television and I learned to be a spectator. Might the read-write possibilities of the digital environment grant me greater access to the dashboard of civilization? And for me, that's what the digital renaissance was all about. And the cultural institutions with which I allied myself at the time, like Mondo 2000 and The Well, the Free Software Foundation, the San Francisco rave scene, the open source community, uh, the cypherpunks and cyberpunks, all seem to be about developing and activating this sensibility that the world is open to our intervention. Anything and everything can be reprogrammed from the norms of gender and the rules of the economy to the articles of the U.S. Constitution. If they're locked down by laws, then chances are it's because they're actually changeable and we've simply forgotten. So by denaturalizing power, which is what I talked about last time in, in the Marina Gorbis episode, like two weeks ago, we reveal that the codes we've been living by were actually written by people to favor their own interests. This this knowledge then triggers our sense of agency to change them. Most of the social and economic laws we accept at face value were written in the era of the printing press, or, or at best, the age of top-down broadcast media. A digital environment offers us new possibilities of access authorship and, and agency, we are free to develop, as I explained back in my 2010 book, Programmer Be Programmed, from player to cheater to author to programmer, and not just online, but in everything. I'm not calling for a revolution here, but a change in orientation. The laws we accept as sacred, inviolable truths are not from God at all, but fungible human artifacts we can adapt or discard. We mustn't mistake this for the accelerationist anti-institutionalism of those who want to tear down the institutions of democracy altogether. Rather, we reclaim the capacity to revise, re-script, and reprogram them ourselves. We can retrieve the functions that our institutions have failed to deliver and then find new ways to fulfill them. We are in charge here. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, at least we're in charge of our culture and attitudes. As far as the natural world is concerned, we aren't in charge at all. We may have been able to dominate life and resources on this planet for the past few hundred years, but there are limits to growth. And when a species overshoots the carrying capacity of its environment, eventually it hits a wall or even kills its host. Most of us are aware of all this, which is why so many of us are invested in trying to solve for the problem of climate change. Problem is, most of the fixes don't really work. They're almost always about finding new, slightly less obscene ways of getting the planet to provide us with the same lame-brained, exploitative, anti-nature stuff we're already taking. I had environmentalist Nate Hagens on last year, who made all this abundantly clear. Renewables are not really renewable. We simply can't use so much energy. Well, I got an email from Nate a week or so ago telling me that a friend and collaborator of his had been listening to Team Human and reading some of the pieces on changing the register instead of changing people, and he wanted me to know he was appreciating this frame. And as it turns out, that friend and collaborator was none other than one of my great heroes of all time, right up there with Michael Nesmith and Robert Anton Wilson, Rex Weiler. Yes, Rex Weiler, co-founder of Greenpeace, editor of the Greenpeace Chronicles, author of Blood of the Land, a history of indigenous American nations that was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, and the author who went on those Greenpeace missions where they'd go out on a little boat and create a human shield in front of the whales so they couldn't be harpooned by industrial whalers, that kind of stuff. I've always wanted to speak with Rex about his tactics, the Greenpeace approach to environmental activism, and what we should do now. It's a great honor, a privilege, to bring you this conversation with Rex Weiler. So, hi. Hi. So nice to connect with you. Love the interview with with Nate. I like what Nate's doing. He's doing some really good work and getting finding interesting people who are also doing good work and Yeah, I know. I keep telling Nate that um, I always get worried that he talks a little bit too much to like the sense making crowd and these folks with, you know, all of this great kind of meta awareness and philosophical blah, blah. And he starts worrying about, you know, uh, is my narrative good enough? And I'm like, and I'm like, dude, you don't you've got the facts. You don't need any. (laughs) I know I've had a similar conversations with him. In fact, I told him, I said, I'm really glad that Doug's encouraged you to have more confidence in what you're saying. So he's taking the right approach in the sense of he still considers himself learning, and that's a good thing. Yes, it is. And as we've seen, I mean, we've had the facts about climate, even before we knew about climate change. We had the facts about human impact on topsoil, on animal life, on the despeciation of the planet, on 
ozone, all sorts of things without any climate change model. We've had the facts, and those facts have not been enough to penetrate certainly Western culture. So the fact that he's now going, how the fuck am I going to communicate this to humanity in an effective way is not... It's not a small question. No. I mean, it's a worthy, it's a worthy question. No, and it's, you know, I've certainly come to that conclusion. And I think, you know, early on in the Greenpeace days in the 70s, I think we understood that too. Like, it's not going to help to just recite the horrible facts or any facts. Yeah, we know the world's in serious, serious trouble, not just ecologically, it's in, it's, it's in trouble culturally, socially, militaristic issues. But reciting those facts are not going to change. We were big fans of McLuhan. I noticed that you you mentioned Marshall McLuhan. We were big fans of Marshall McLuhan, who, as a Canadian, we were here in Canada in those days. Marshall McLuhan really influenced us to, you know, get beyond the facts. That's not how people learn. We learn by story. We learn by narrative. We learn when we get emotionally involved and connect and so forth. Right. So then you you were at least part of the kind of the founding group of, of Greenpeace, you know, the, the first director there. I, mean, I don't know if Greenpeace was your idea as such, but I mean, or, or was it? No, no. Greenpeace was a larger idea. It was a group of of anti-war peace activists in Vancouver, but there was a kind of subgroup, including myself, that was really interested in ecology and just felt like ecology was the next thing. It's even if we solved, you know, there was a in the 1970s there was a very strong uh, civil rights movement, there was a very strong peace movement, there was a strong women's movement, but there was no really we felt there was no really strong ecology movement at that time. Right, and this was when, like after after Rachel Carson and Silent Spring, or it was even before that? After Rachel Carson, and Rachel Carson was the first book. I was a physics student in university in the 60s when I first read Rachel Carson, and I realized, holy smokes, you know, we're not just going to engineer ourselves out of this problem. This is a deeper, deeper problem. And, and Rachel Carson changed me from essentially an engineer and as a physics student to like, wait a minute, I've got to pay attention to the living world. I met Gregory Bateson at that time, who was doing lectures at the University of California and began to meet other ecologists. And I came to Canada in 1972 as a draft resistor. And that's how I met the the peace movement people in Canada. So there was a subgroup that was that felt that we had ecology was as, as important as all our social issues and peace. So that's where Greenpeace came from. One of our one of our colleagues at a meeting when when somebody we used to give the peace sign and say peace, and someone said make it a Greenpeace, meaning mm. you got to add ecology. And so that name Greenpeace. Right. That's how that name came about. It's interesting. So it's almost like a subdomain of the peace domain was exactly. we're gonna have the the subcommittee <laughs> to use an internet parlance. But but it's interesting. So there's there there are kind of these two types of thought that are emerging at the same time, right? One is this a systems understanding of our reality, which is sort of Bateson and all those folks, a system cybernetic understanding. And the other is an ecological understanding of the world as this living thing. And they obviously dovetail. They're 
you know, part and parcel of the same thing, but but they kind of came from two different places. The the people that are realizing, oh, wait a minute, ecology is a bigger story. Capitalism is externalizing things. War is externalizing harm. We've got to look at the world as an ecology, along with then these kind of more hardcore cyberneticist sociologists and anthropologists like Bateson and, and systems theorists saying, oh, wait a minute, math isn't even just one plus one is two. It's this whole big yeah. systems thing. Well, we had to learn we had to learn a systems way of thinking about systems because when when we started <laughs> thinking about systems of course humanity and many smart people the cyberneticists started thinking about systems as as mach- like the way we think about machines with lines right. between hubs and so forth but that's not how living systems work you know, living systems are dynamic. They don't necessarily have a center. They don't necessarily even have a purpose mm. as, as a system, nor do systems change the way you plan. If, if you plan to, to shift a system in a certain way, but we're inside the system we're trying to shift. But when we try to shift a system, the system's not necessarily going to respond the way we want it to respond when we take an action. I think honestly, Doug. I think this goes right. back all the way to the Taoists. I think that some some of the Taoist yeah. writers understood this. Like, slow down, take note, follow nature, learn, be a bit modest. You're not, and this is why I say I don't think we're going to engineer ourselves out of this. We have to be co-learning with everything else on Earth, and that's more the ecological view versus the mechanistic systems view. Right. I mean, because there is, and we spoke a little bit about it in an email, I mean, there was a tendency in some of the early systems thinkers, when they first kind of discovered it in the 40s and 50s, reading Norbert Wiener, was to look at it from a slightly distanced perspective. In other words, that, oh, that humans live in systems. So, you know, and, and, and Fred Turner wrote the great book on Bateson and Mead and, and sort of their understanding of, of humanity there at, at a time as a bit like rats in a maze, that we can orchestrate things now that we know it's a system. We can move this thing over there and then the system will change. And I guess, you know, a friend of mine, Mark Stallman, is, you know, very critical of them because they were like mean to, you know, mean to Norbert Wiener because he became a Marxist once he saw how systems work. And they kind of, you know, worked in a slightly different direction for a while. But it, it sounds like over the long term, they became kind of deep ecologists also, that they saw that systems, see the tech bros, this is my thing, the tech bros understand systems, but then think that they're somehow above and apart from the yeah. system. And they see the world like a big game of Sim City that they can create <laughs> software and fix. But what you're saying is a much more indigenous Aboriginal sensibility of systems as, yes, it's a system, but like McLuhan would say, you're a fish, but you're swimming in the water. So yeah. <laughs> you can't see yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly it. And and that transition from that mechanistic way to think about systems to a, a truly ecological way to think about systems, I think is, 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 is a big part of the journey of our age. It's what we have to learn to truly think ecologically. I mean, even when we try to solve problems now, the whole sort of problem-solving way of thinking that, that we're taught in schools going, you know, from yeah. preschool, from high school, and then university science classes— 
we're taught that systems have solutions and you have to know what the what the system is and if you have a problem you 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 figure out what uh, what the factors are and you manipulate the factors and you solve it you come and it's fixed <laughs> and you're done right also that's the idea <laughs> that's the problem is that we think of the environment as something we're going to fix Instead of thinking ecologically and understanding that it's something we are a part of, we are the ecology, we live inside of it, and we can be more aware of our impacts. I mean, it's just like the difference between, say, careful ecological gardening versus industrial agriculture. It's just like when you actually get when you actually work with the soil, work with with growing things with your hands, you start to learn that there's much, much more to it than just supplying some nutrients and some seeds and some water. Right. Right. They think of the dirt as dead. Yeah. You know, I remember I was even at Esalen of all places, Esalen Institute, and they were using one of these big, like, corkscrewy things to pull the that the turn over the soil and I'm walking with this permaculture guy and he's like, oh my God, they're killing the soil. I mean, what do you mean they're killing the soil? It's dirt. He goes, it's not dirt. It's a living matrix. It's all this stuff and mycelia and everything. It's like, you've got to turn it. If you're going to turn it, you, you just make aerate it a little bit, help it along, yeah. but don't attack it like that. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> but then every, once you see that, that everything becomes that it's really it's really really hard but but i mean there's 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 so many different ways to to track what you're talking about to to start with one of the things i've been i've been struggling is too strong a word i've been challenged by since starting this thing team human is the role of humans in the whole thing you know and I originally came up with the words team human because I was having an argument with Ray Kurzweil, oh. who was talking about team robot, right? And he was like, robots are going to take over and all that. And I said, no, humans are special. And he goes, oh, you just say that because you're human. So then I said, fine, I'm on team human, right? So that's how I got to team human, but not to say that team human versus all the other species. You know, I do think that humans have perhaps some special role if for no other reason than we're the we create the most damage to this environment so we have a special obligation to try to assist in the repair you know that maybe nature is kind of cruel sometimes or unthinking in some ways and human beings if we are thinking we can at least ameliorate some of the 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 cruelty of it i think about the kinds of human beings who've made places work better rather than worse, indigenous people in particular, who've actually worked in harmony with nature to everybody, little animals, little plants, everybody's doing better, right? So we do have some special part, don't we? Special is a strange word, but a unique role? Well, yes, perhaps. But I think you hit on it when you said what we certainly have is an obligation. <laughs> <laughs> we are causing the most damage, Right now, on Earth, you've probably heard this little uh, factoid, but right now on Earth, all mammal biomass on Earth, humans, our pets, and our livestock comprise 95.5% of all mammal biomass on Earth. That includes all the whales, all the wolves, all the rats, all the giraffes. 95.5% is humans, our pets, and our livestock. Okay, mm. that's a problem. 
And oftentimes I hear my friends and colleagues who are more humanists wanting to solve, of course, civil rights issues, justice issues globally, saying that things like bringing up the population issue is unfair to the poor and and when we talk about ecological overshoot, uh, that sounds anti-human and so forth. And for me personally, as an ecologist, I, I'm not anti-human. I, I love my family. I love my children. I love my neighbors. I love myself and, and humanity. But that doesn't change the fact that we have to back off. So part of, part of our obligation is not necessarily to manage Earth's ecosystems as if we're the engineers of Earth that are going to manage the future. But part of our obligation is just simply to back off and let other things have a place to live. Right. But whenever we say something like that, and it's hard, I mean, I have my answers, but whenever I say something like that, they're like, well, yeah, but, you know, aren't the African people entitled to refrigerators like you've had for the last 50 years? And aren't the Chinese entitled to air conditioning? You know, and even the idea that entitled to that, it's necessarily a great thing to have air conditioning and refrigerators and well, and entitled to based on what I mean, the one question we always have to ask is, can the earth supply every human desire? Well, no, the answer is no, the earth cannot supply every human desire. So the fact that people want certain things, and we think in, in, a, in a social justice point of view, sure, everybody on earth deserves equal as good as anybody equal opportunities else. as right. good as anybody else. And then we have to ask the question, question, well, what is this good life we're talking about? Everybody's got refrigerators and air conditioners. How many people can the earth support with everybody having refrigerators and air conditioners and cars and electric cars and solar panels and computers and add it all up? And actually, you know, do the work. If you think you're going to engineer your way out of this, then do the engineering. Add it up. What's the supply? Right. Just the arithmetic. Just do right. You just do. You don't even need the engineering. You just do the arithmetic. I mean, Nate Hagen's style arithmetic. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, wait a minute. You mean if we transition the whole world to Teslas, it still doesn't work? Right. So all of the work that you're doing to figure out how to make an electric car is not where we should be putting our effort. It's how do we design a society where people don't need to drive around in cars at all, which is actually an easier engineering problem than figuring out how to get cobalt and lithium out of the ground without a slave labor. Way way easier, way easier. (laughs) Yeah, that's the irony, Doug, is that real ecological solutions are not only easier, they're way more pleasant. It's just like taking a train versus sitting on a freeway driving a car. I mean, for Gaia's sake. I know, I just, I always make that, I I look back at, at, you know, when, when GM got rid of the streetcar and all that. And and the argument they had to make, I mean, guys were working in factories all day, right? And they would finish their eight-hour day of operating heavy machinery, have a beer, get on the streetcar with your friends, and a newspaper, and it takes you home. We traded that for buying a vehicle and operating a heavy machinery vehicle another hour to get home, risking lives of people and paying one day a week and destroying the planet to do it. Where does that come from, right? Marketing, I guess. It comes from marketing and capital. It comes from profiteering. It comes from the fact that they knew 
that they could sell a lot of cars and a lot of petroleum products. And the more people that drove cars, the more they would sell. And so they tore up the streetcars, tore up the tracks in virtually every major city in North America and, and introduced the car. And I have often said, Douglas, the car is one of the worst social design decisions ever in the history of humanity. Uh, and it, it, it has been a disaster. It's been a disaster from day one. And trying to turn them into electric cars, I am sorry, this is not a solution to our ecological problem. It's not a solution to our social problem. The solutions are build living environments where people can walk around or get on a streetcar or a train and go to wherever they have to go. I mean, I don't know if, if you've lived where you've lived. I've lived in places well, I've lived in Europe, for example, and I've traveled around the world where, yeah, I can go to any ad, I can be anywhere in Europe and in any address in Europe and go to any other address in Europe and don't have to have a car, go get on the streetcar, right. go to the central station, get on a train, go where you're going to go. You can go to Delhi, you know, for that matter. So the car was a huge mistake. One of the worst social engineering decisions ever made and there's no saving it with with electric cars i'm sorry about that but that's just the case right and then and then the car itself then as an experience and, and a behavior it magnifies individualism and competition yeah, yeah. and isolation and even mcluhan you know mcluhan would he was talking about what is um the automobile amplify i thought he was going to say in his in his tetrad for it i thought he was going to say speed <laughs> and he says no he said isolation and privacy yeah. it was interesting it's like oh that dude he was thinking deeply right so they created these stories of individualism and ownership and whatever that led us to want to have a mcmansion with air conditioning and a car and this and that and then you know your work at greenpeace and i remember i was old enough to remember greenpeace chronicles and i think <laughs> part of why i knew greenpeace chronicles and this i don't know if i should be proud or not is because john Lilly wrote he did. for green i mean there were psychedelic people if you'll pardon me wrote for greenpeace chronicles because they were i mean and that was how i got turned on actually i mean if you don't mind that was how i kind of found um i found the psychedelic movement through the uh ecological movement i guess many of us did because it was it helped us acquire a system's understanding you know i am one with mm -hmm. everything but now I'm responsible for everything. Yeah. And, you know, it, it. there's a weight that uh, hopefully a weight of responsibility that comes with a psychedelic experience, not just a detachment from reality. Well, I, I, and I think that's why, that's why many indigenous uh, cultures uh, ritualized those experiences because there, there was, there's something about that that did help or support the idea of quieting down, being a living thing, a living part of a living earth and, and having respect for that. And, and so by, by ritualizing that respect, and there's many ways you don't, you don't need psychedelics to ritualize respect for the earth, but finding ways to really have that deep respect and humility and, and quiet down our sort of desire to manage everything. And again, I, to me, this goes, <laughs> This goes right back to the Taoists, really. I mean, Taoists had an idea mm. called Xin Ling, which was called, which was, who might be translated as divine efficacy. And so divine efficacy is like an effectiveness that runs much deeper than 
just say some political victory or something like that. The divine efficacy is a deeper, it's almost like McLuhan was onto this same sort of thing. That how, do, how do systems actually learn and how do systems get unstuck and change? And in order to be a part of that, we're going back now to our, the fact that you brought it up, that we have an obligation as humans with the damage we've done to do something. But I say we also have an obligation to do something that's actually effective and not just sounds good. So instead of building electric cars, why don't we... Why don't we think about this for a minute and slow down? And can we actually participate in a in an effective way that shows respect for the earth? And so this is why I think that that the the sacredness is mm. a part of this. It's like this isn't just an engineering project. That, that, right. that we there has to be a sacredness and a recognition. And so I think the ritualizing of that is helpful and some important and significant and so anyway i just think that that goes that goes way back into history not just many many indigenous cultures as we know but all the way back also three four thousand years ago to the early Taoists who saw some of these problems with human society dominating everything and said whoa wait a minute slow down Right. I mean, and it's tricky, though, because some of the, the most supported scientists and technologists have the opposite view, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, Dawkins and, and uh, you know, evolutionary scientists of his ilk that are really so they're dead set on proving that, hey, nothing to see here. Move along. Yeah. There's no, you know, and if I t t start to talk about, well, there's, don't you think there's some sort of sacred sanctity to life and to humans? They're like, oh, here it's God delusion. You guys are, you're crazy. Yeah. You know, and it's like, boy, I don't know how many hundreds of years of philosophy we need. Wittgenstein, I mean, we've all, I mean, the academics and, and scholarly philosophy has more than dealt with this problem in terms of systems of meaning. Yeah. <laughs> but it feels like we're still somehow capitalism does so well with a purely mechanical understanding. There's a lot of scientists that still promote that. And then there's there are our you know, sadist um, uh, uh, eugenicists yeah. like, you know, Jeffrey Epstein or whoever, yeah. or Sam Bankman Fried or someone who will bankroll this understanding of the world because it supports their business model. So the, the object of the game, and you recognize this early on, was to kind of flip the script, to flip the narrative. And you can compare early Greenpeace work, like you were the the sailing campaigns with the with the, I don't know if you want to describe them for people who are too young to remember, but to me it was almost like it was the first generation of what eventually became like act up style activism. These sort of provocative ocean adventures. Right. <laughs> that <laughs> Well the reason that we, we felt you have to do oh, and by the way, you know, taking a boat out and, and which we did is sa sailing into nuclear test zones and so forth. That's something we actually borrowed from the Quakers who sailed boats into nuclear test zone. But then we applied oh, really? it to, to ecology. So Right. Weren't you the ones you were going next to the, the, the ships that were trying to kill the whales and you were getting between the ship and the whale, like like risking your lives yeah, and, to and save honest, the whales? Honestly, like? Douglas, yeah. people thought we were insane when we proposed this. <laughs> You're crazy. First of all, people say, you're never going to find the whalers out in the middle of the ocean with a little fishbone, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, 
but we felt, and we got this partially from McLuhan. I don't know if you know about the provosts in, in Amsterdam, but they were very creative <laughs> activists. Look, look them up sometime, the provosts. But the thing that, that the provosts understood, that McLuhan understood, is people don't change because you give them the facts. We could tell people about how many whales were left and how many whales were being killed or how, many, how much of the forest was left. And we knew that that was not going to create an ecology movement. But what might help is to give, give the public stories and images, give them a narrative that people were actually out there. We're going to actually go out there and we're going to get between the exploding harpoon and the whale and we're going to say, no, you got to shoot through us to kill that whale. And when we would do that, we thought, okay, that that could help start an ecology movement. And we did it, and it did. Well, it was the, I mean, it was less the actions themselves than the pictures of the actions yeah. that spread. You know, you save one whale for, you know, five hours maybe until someone else comes and tries to kill it. But the picture, and then me, I'm in high school, and I see this, and I go, not only are these people trying to kill a whale, but there are human beings willing to risk their lives to get between the harpoon and the whale. Yeah. And that's how you know, well, this must be urgent. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and so, you know, this, this, the idea that, that what was important was to create that narrative and, and shift right. the conversation because people had this idea of whaling as sort of Moby Dick idea of, of these little right. tiny men in these little boats and they, with these little spears and this giant leviathan. But the reality was the opposite. It was these giant metal machine boats, these huge giant machines with these exploding harpoons killing what when you and when you see the whales next to these giant boats, the whales look tiny and small. So we flipped that perception of whaling and we flipped the image. And so right. It was that flip, not the facts, not the data. Now, we had good data. We, uh, Greenpeace always had good science, and we respected the science behind what we were doing. But we knew the science wasn't enough. You have to, you have to retell the story and create a new story. Right. But you know what's interesting? So you look at Greenpeace's Gen 1. The next big thing I remember was, you know, Al Gore and Inconvenient Truth. And, you know, God bless him. And I was at a couple of conferences where he did the PowerPoint and showed the whole thing. But on some level, I feel like Al Gore and Inconvenient Truth and that whole thing and the earth balance, it it feels to me like it failed on some fundamental level or may have even had some kind of a reverse effect that it was so rational, but it was as if, I don't know what we were supposed to do, like buy solar panels, invest in a, a venture fund that's doing, you know, green oil or something. I mean, that's exactly the direction it went. And I agree. It's been a failure. And part of the failure is, again, that that solution engineering solution mentality that oh the problem is global heating global warming now we call it climate change global warming is the problem well how do we solve it well we'll solve it with electric cars and windmills and solar panels and here we are now 20 years 30 years down the road how are we doing on solving the problem the first international climate meeting was in 1979 
We've had 34 meetings since then, since 1979, 34 international climate meetings, and, and human carbon emissions have increased every single year. And the amount of increase has increased every single year, except for a couple of years. So the problem, it's, it would be like somebody's, somebody's an, an alcoholic who's drinking a bottle of whiskey a day starts going to a doctor and 30 years later he's drinking seven bottles a day and and going well i'm making progress (laughs) you know so we're we have this kind of addictive it it feels like humanity is acting out as an addict yes Right. And the rationalizations and justifications sound like what you hear from the when they're like, well, look, yeah, I'm going to quit next month. But right now I'm just going to keep snorting and doing whatever. And you can't. You never get there. You never there. get there. You never get there. And so part of what's happened then is and so now we've been 20, 30 years now trying to solve the global right. warming problem. And we're, we're not making any headway whatsoever. But we've lost the thread of ecology. We think we're going to fix the planet with solar panels and windmills, but we forgot that solar panels and windmills require cement and steel and, and cobalt from Africa and lithium and on and on and on and on. And, right. You know. Now, here's the thing. I've done this. I've made the, this argument, what I call the Nate argument, because that's where I, I first heard it, you know, that, oh, look, you want to do your big transition to, to electrical cars, you're going to have to dig all this out of the ground and dig all that. By the time you just take England and turn it to electric cars, you're going to use up all the lithium on the planet and whatever, those kind of arguments. Or solar panels still do this, they still wear out, and they still got to make them, you still got to manufacture them. And then I get emails saying, well, you know, the oil industry is actually promoting the argument that you're making. In other words, that they're, that to say these things, is dangerous that it's that solar panels are better than not and i shouldn't be arguing against them when they're at least in the right direction right, but you're not you're not necessarily arguing against solar panels you're simply pointing out that a, a windmill requires steel and electricity steel and cement and mining and cobalt and 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 copper and on and on if it's is it 10 20% better though than just burning petrol and if it is isn't 10% better better well you see this is where people get caught up in the theory instead of what actually happens because whenever we yeah. add a solar panel or I'm all for windmills I'm all I'm all for solar panels and and I'm all for windmills that's fine it's a good way to create energy however with all of the building of what we call renewable energy, which, as you pointed out, it's not really renewable. It's rebuildable because you have to, you know, right. they have a life set. But nobody stops burning petroleum because you build a windmill. So th- the problem is we're, you just add to the energy, adding, <laughs> adding to the human energy budget. And that's always the way energy transitions throughout history have always happened. We never stop burning wood. We never stop burning coal. We've never given up an energy source. We just keep adding new ones. Right. It's like adding lanes. There's just traffic on the highway. Let's add another lane. Yeah. You know, and how long does that work? It just leads to more traffic on the highway. And the fact that people will accuse you of, oh, you're be, you're becoming a shill for the oil companies because right. you're pointing out that that solar panels and windmills so far have not reduced human carbon emissions by one single molecule. So 
shouldn't we be asking that question? So if you ask that question, then you get accused of being a shill for the oil companies. And it's because people, you know, those people who will say something like that do not understand ecology. They don't understand the the actual situation that we're in. The, the ecological problem that humans are in is what we call in ecology is simple. It's overshoot. Successful right. species overshoot their habitat. The wolves will overshoot a watershed. The algae will overshoot a lake. The locusts will overshoot a prairie full of grasses. Successful species will overshoot because nature teaches us to consume and reproduce. Nature doesn't t- tell us when to stop. Well, don't certain things stop? I mean, forests stop, right? Or do they keep going? Do they overshoot and then something happens? They overshoot and then something happens. And and then what's the thing? What happens? Well, I mean, when a (laughs) forest. Okay, here's what happens in a forest. Everything in a forest is competing with everything else. So you see this in your own gardens. I mean, the brambles, the blackberries, the, everything grows in. It's the, the, like the, when the blackberries get to the apple tree, the, they don't stop and go, oh, excuse me, you know, go ahead. You know, No, they grow right through the apple tree and, and they will kill the apple tree and the ferns will kill other things. So, But when a whole forest region, for example, is taken over by ferns or taken over by a certain kind of tree, everything else gets dies off. I mean, in a cedar forest, I live in a cedar forest, and the cedar trees actually drop toxins into the soil around them so nothing else grows. I mean, things are aggressive. What about, I thought all the trees are talking and helping each (laughs) other and sharing nutrients under the ground through mycelial networks. Well, they are. And then there's that. But, you know, but the point is, is that, you know, say, say you have wolves in a watershed, Right. The wolves will grow. If there's lots of uh, prey, and they'll kill all the deer, and they'll kill the rats, and they'll kill whatever's there, and they'll eat them. But when they overshoot that watershed, the wolves will die back. And the problem that, that the humans have now, and it's the same in a lake. When the algae starts growing in the lake, it'll consume every every nutrient in the lake, all the nitrogen, all the phosphorus in the lake. Until it's all gone and the lake is choked with algae and then the algae dies because there's no more nutrients. So the fact that that successful species overshoot their habitat is not because those species are evil. Humans aren't evil because we've overshot the habitat of the earth. We're just normal species that that nature evolution taught us to to consume and reproduce. and, And we do. So. If we are going to solve that ecological problem, we have to do something that's very rare in nature. We actually have to back off. We have to figure out how to slow down our consumption and our reproduction, and that's not something that we like to hear. But if Western people hadn't come along, right, the indigenous people of, say, you know, North and South America— were they going to overshoot eventually also, even without tech, or were they going to be fine? Well, so, some some communities and some cultures did much better than others, and some still do today on Earth. But no, I mean, in Central America, the, the, the Maya and the Aztecs had already overshot their, ha- their habitats in that region. And we, right. we have evidence of large-scale mammal extinctions going back 50,000 years. So, sure, the the oil era, the industrial era, certainly 
cranked the speed of overshoot up to global proportions. But, you know, humans, right. humans going back 50,000 years were able to wipe out species in their habitats and overshoot right. their habitats. Yeah, but capitalism and industrialism are are so brittle as to make an orderly scale back more challenging. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? That if we're just sort of hanging out, uh, and chopping wood, it's like, oh, I think we're using too much of the forest. Maybe have a few less kids. Uh, uh. Well, capitalism is is an example of a success. It it achieved what it right. set out to achieve. It made a lot of people really wealthy and 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 improved their lives and gave gave a lot of people improved lives. But look at the cost. We now have 8 billion people on the planet. There's about a billion people who are literally live on the edge of starvation and do not have clean water and do not have enough food every day and go to bed hungry. 9 million people a year starve to death. That's about a 1,000 an hour are mm. starving to death. As we speak, boom, 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 not enough food. So... And and people often say, well, there's plenty of food, but it's the distribution problem. We just have to – well, no, you have to think of the whole system, Douglas. It, yeah, distribution is a problem, but distribution is part of the capitalist system. It's part of the engineering system. It's like the food gets distributed by the people who've got the money to pay for it. Right. So if you want to change the distribution system, you're going to have to change the financial system. And people don't want to change the financial system because the people that that are in control of the financial system are getting wealthy. And so we go for ideas like renewable energy and, and electric cars because those are profitable. And they're they're not inconvenient. No. You know what I mean? It must, okay, just to put away your Chevy. I mean, which is still stupid. Keep your Chevy as long as it'll fucking work but all right trade in your chevy and let them stick that in the landfill so you can now drive an electric car and feel like you're you know you've externalized your emissions to production and destruction and while you drive it you see nothing you know so you can feel good right so which 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 doesn't work either so then the question is then then obviously it seems to me the only thing that we can do is some sort of degrowth you know it certainly in the west we've got to consume less energy. And culturally, it seems to me easy. I mean, it's part of why I started Team Human was like, make friends with your neighbor yeah. so you don't have to get in the car and drive to the amusement park. Yeah. Borrow, instead of buying a drill to make a hole in the wall, go to your neighbor and borrow a drill. And then everybody's like, oh, what about the drill company? You know, they're going to, it's like, yes, they're going to have to shrink and that's all good. But I can't think of another way to do it except through the, the sort of the micro actions of individuals, which eventually they take the stress off the larger systems and 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 remove some of the power from these companies and politicians. Yeah. I mean, you're exactly right. That's what we have to do. But that cuts against our cultural story of growth and human exceptionalism and profiteering and we're a unique species. Well, that's the definition of a species. Every species is a unique species. <laughs> so right. <laughs> we're not unique. Specific, right. Being unique doesn't make <laughs> us unique. <laughs> but sure, humans are very clever. And sure, we do. And, you know, what we've accomplished and what we've accomplished with our engineering and with our economies is, is phenomenal. But we're not paying attention to the costs. 
and the costs are catching up with us. And that's that's basically the issue. And it's not just the ecological costs. It's the social costs. It's the fact yeah. that there's 9 million people starving to death. And it's not just the 9 million people starving to death. It's the billion people that are on the brink of starvation. It's the ones that actually survive, I feel sorry for the most, that are living on the edge of starvation. And and only about 15% of the human population actually lives with with the full benefits of capitalism and about 15% of the population gets to take a bath every day and gets hot water and has hot water in their house and gets to eat every day and so forth and and have computers and talk to each other and and that's that's nice but if yeah. we've done what we've done to the earth ecologically to make that possible for 15% of the humanity how are we going to what earth are we going to consume in order to make that possible for the other 80, other 85% and so this is where the questions of so, human social justice have to be linked to humans as you said slowing down doing less degrowing because it's just not built into us by evolution. Right. It's a tricky one, and particularly because the 15% who are currently believe that they are thriving off the spoils of capitalism while externalizing harm to the other 85%, that 15% is mainly responsible for media and stories and, and cult. I mean, it's us, you know, yeah. and, and most of us are still trying to, you know, save for their 401k, whatever retirement plan, or, you know, to get a blockbuster movie or sell something in Hollywood <laughs> or sell their book or their thing. And you generally don't get that by suggesting, hey, everybody, let's just make friends and kind of slow down and hang out. And, you know, you don't get that by creating a scaled business that doesn't have growth. Jamba Juice is going to come in and replace your pizzeria if you don't keep growing, yeah. you know? Yeah, and I, I don't know the solution, Douglas. I know that that's what's going to have to happen. I think it's inevitable that humanity is going to contract. Right. You know, my hope and dream for my children and grandchildren and their generations is that we could do that wisely, but mm. if we don't do it wisely, uh, it's inevitable, and it's gonna. And if we don't do it wisely, it's gonna be brutal. Right. The, right. The die is cast in a certain level. It, it's going to happen. The scaling back will happen. Yeah. Right. Our only choice is: Are we going to do this as compassionately as possible, or? In some, you know, uh, uh, Malthusian genetic or e eugenic, yeah, uh, you know, that was where I wrote about billionaires in their bunkers. Yeah. I mean, that's the mentality. It's not just the individual billionaire in the bunker, but you know, this is the five percent of dudes who are going to, you know, build the wall and you know, uh, uh, lock out the the ninety five percent of of climate refugees and others who are desperate. Well, it's actually probably more like point five percent. Right. And 99.5 who will, uh, but, yeah. Yeah. It is hard to imagine how to help that happen. But I really like your ideas about working locally, about localizing. I live in a small community. I feel like in a, in a small community, I can be effective. I, I go back to that Taoist idea of divine efficacy that you know, we can plant our garden, we can we can have a potato co-op with our neighbors, we can share tools, 
you know, I've had neighbors come over. We 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 rebuilt our fence recently, and you know, I had like ha- a dozen neighbors over here, and in one day, we just boom, boom, boom. You know, it it it, mm. it it's like the uh, the Amish raising a barn, you know, on a smaller scale, helping each other. And you can't buy that. You, you, there's no profit. There's no there's no profit that will gain you loyalty and love and friendship. And those things are what makes to me makes life worth living and makes life yep. pleasurable. And the other thing you brought up was entertaining ourselves, not relying on electronic, international, global entertainment corporations and stars to entertain us. Like get together, like learn to play a musical instrument, uh, do some community theater go for walks together in the woods you know the right or learn to garden or do a i mean the funny thing is you know i i, I talk about right this return to the local and that people can start permaculture farming and doing craft and craft beers and this and that you know and knitting and making things and they're like oh you know well you know no one would really want to do that you know and i'm like what do the wealthiest people in the world do once they retire they do craft beers, they do organic gardening, <laughs> they learn an instrument, they make canoes. It's like, wait a minute, that's all the stuff that we could have been doing to survive in a in a sustainable way to begin with. So it's like, if you could just, what if you just don't have to become a billionaire and retire, you could just start living like a billionaire right now. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Take your retirement on the front end, make sure you get it in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> remind, there's an old there's an old story about a kid sitting on a sitting on the dock fishing and the guy comes in on his big yacht, the billionaire comes in on his big yacht and says and he sees the kid fishing, he says, Shouldn't you be in school? How come you're f- sitting here fishing? Shouldn't you be in school? And the kid says, No, no, I'm just I'm just fishing. Why should I go to school? And the billionaire says, well, if you go to school, you get an education. And the kid says, well, why why do I need an education? He says, well, if you get an education, man, you can get a job. Well, why would I want a job? He says, well, if you get a job, you can make money, and then you can invest that money, and someday you could be as rich as me and do anything you want. And the kid says, well, I am doing what I want. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that's – but and and kind of that's what you're pointing at is – Live the good life now, and the good life is having friends, having a family, taking care of them, growing food, learning some skills, practicing those skills. Building stuff is fun. Oh, if you yeah. learn some car- basic carpentry and learn how to build something, and I find gardening and carpentry and stuff like that, I find it fun. Like I love to do that stuff, and I don't, you know, I wish I could do it even more. And you know, or if I want to, you know, I do my creative writing projects. I play music with my friends. To me, that's what makes life really worth living. And then when I'm involved locally in politics or in in education in my community or whatever I'm doing in my community. I'm working with people that I know. They know who I am. Yeah. I know who they are. We have a relationship, and it's and it feels good. Where I hate working in in environments where I don't know everybody, and where it's just like just a bunch of automatons wandering around, or where you're in meetings with people you don't even know or particularly care about, or even know what their values are. So uh, you've got me started, Douglas. I could go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I mean, this is this is great, though. I mean, this is uh, kind of precisely what I what I needed at this particular moment in my life because um, I'm sure you know this is a hard road, yeah. you know, yeah. and uh, partly because there's just it's really easy to to question the underlying assumptions and conclusions, you know, that we've reached, and there's a lot of critique, and it feels relatively hopeless. But however hopeless it is, you know, still we can incrementally lessen lessen the pain lessen the, the anguish you know it, it's it's gonna happen what's gonna happen is gonna happen but you know if we can lessen the pain for 10 people along the way you know well, <laughs> lessen the decree absolutely and, it's and that's why I, that's why i really resonate with your ideas about localizing because i feel that's the level at the level of your family your community your friends and by community, I don't mean a city of six million people or ten billion right. people. I mean a community like of you know enough people you know pretty much know everybody and you can help each other. Right, and that could be in a city on your block in your building. I mean, it's yeah. fine. It's not where it's it's just not at scale. Yeah, the scale yeah. is really significant. And when I think of community, I think of you know maybe a thousand people and you know half of them. You know, yeah, that's a community. Right. And I think what people have to get, and this is what I keep trying to to underscore, is that, you know, when they ask, well, yeah, but how does that fix the whole world? It's like, it doesn't, right? It doesn't. But the more we do that, the the less weight we're putting on these brittle, rigid, awful capitalist systems, the less we're buying, the less we're empowering um, those who really don't have our best interests at heart. And that's all we can really do. That's right. And I'm pretty sure nobody's going to fix the world. And if you look at at the history of people who thought they were going to fix the world and make it a certain way and make everybody do the same thing or make everybody live a certain way, that that's not a pretty picture. That does not tend to work out well when people think they have a global plan. Like when I hear someone say, well, if everybody would just whatever. X, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Same thing. How do we get people to blank? I'm like, don't get people to do anything. Yeah. You know, leave the people alone. You know? <laughs> Trying to get people to do something is part of the problem. It's one of the biggest problems. You know, right. I, and, you know, I grew up in the era of post-World War II, communism after the Russian Revolution and the Chinese Revolution and, and, and the ideas of communism, which made sense to me even as a kid. Like, why, why isn't sharing? Sharing's a good idea. Why does all our efforts have to be private and personal? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to outdo my neighbor and I'm going to get rich. Like, sharing with your neighbors is a good idea. So... A lot of us in my generation, we grew up, you know, being partial to the ideas of socialism and communism. But then when I look at what the heck happened with people who thought they were going to remake humanity according to their ideology, I mean, it's pretty clear it just becomes a nightmare. So, you know, I'm very skeptical of people that think they have an ideology that's going to change the world. But... I'm not so skeptical. In fact, I'm very supportive of people in a community who have an idea about how we could make our lives better. And that actually makes sense to me. And I think that that's where most of the important changes that are going to happen are going to happen at that level, at the local level. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I, I agree, which is why it's so funny that you see, you know, MacArthur and Google with their X prizes or $100 million grant for people who can create a scaled solution for planetary, yeah. you know, democratic climates. Like, no, that award is the structure of that award is the very problem. The problem is not how do we solve something at scale? The problem is scale. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that is the problem. That is the problem. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, this is great. I want to. I would do want to play this for my uh, my team human audience. I mean, this is it's an important conversation, and it's uh, it's ultimately, I think, it's a cheerful conversation because it means. Wait a minute. You mean the way to save the world is just to like meet people and have fun? It's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> Kinda is. Yeah. At least that's if that if ninety percent of people did that, then the other ten percent could solve <laughs> what, what, what's you know, left. I'm, yeah, I'm not against <laughs> large scale change, but yeah, you know, I do think it starts locally. I think, for example, healthcare. I'm telling you that as as we bump up against the biophysical limits of our beloved planet Earth. One of the things that's going to suffer is modern modern healthcare, and you know people are going to be better off. Communities are going to be better off if they learn how to take care of each other. You know, actually physically take yeah. take care of each other. And where do the important plants grow that you're going to want to have and want to know how they work and how to get them? And how do you how do you cure a headache when the trucks stop running? Yeah, I know. And there, that, there's, no, there's no better argument for humans anyway about the despeciation of the planet than, well, that's an herb you might need someday. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true. <laughs> a little self-interest. A little self-interest goes a long way. Yeah, nothing wrong with an it. argument these yeah. days. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for talking to me and for being on Team Human. I know everyone's going to get a real dose of inspiration for uh, for listening to you. Well, Douglas, I'm, I'm I'm really thrilled and honored to to be able to speak with you and your listeners, and uh, really honored. And love your work, love the, your the ideas that you've put out into the world, and they've meant a lot to me too. So, all the best to you. And thank you for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Rex Weiler of Greenpeace. His deep green column can be read at Greenpeace org. Thanks for being on. Uh, Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. We're going to have our next Team Human Salon on Friday, April 28th at 3 p.m. Eastern. If you have access to our Discord channel, then you can just come right in. If you don't yet, then please become a member of Team Human by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support or go to patreon.com slash teamhuman. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'll see you next time. You've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 